What in the world is going to happen? That's the title of the series we're currently in the middle of here on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Join us. in the world is going to happen. That's the title of our series here on Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Welcome to our broadcast today. It's our prophetic series, looking forward, if you will, to what the end will really look like. Today's broadcast is simply entitled The Great Investigation. We would invite you to join us as we continue with our series, What in the World is Going to Happen? close of the broadcast, stick around. I've got information as to how to obtain not only a copy of this series, but the book as well. It's all straight ahead. For now, here's Pastor Phil. Last week we looked at the coming of Christ for his own, the church. And we looked at John 14 and other passages. We believe that once we're in the air and we meet the Lord, eventually in that period, He's going to set up the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll look at that this morning. And that word judgment is the Greek word bima. That's more of an athletic kind of a judgment instead of a judicial court. So many times people will use the word bima just to soften it, that you're not going to be there to judge your sins. You're going to be there to have your life evaluated as a believer to see what kind of life you've lived since you've been a believer, and you'll be either rewarded or you'll suffer loss, uh, one of the way or the other. And then tonight, as we uh, look at the man of sin, uh, it'll come to this seven-year tribulation period, we think, is ahead of us in the history of the church and its future. And we'll be developing other messages on this in the return of Christ. Uh, I'm glad the Lord led me here because I'm just amazed at how many have never studied these events. Many of us grew up as a part of our Christianity to grow up with prophetic truth. Uh, And so I think it's one of the most exciting areas uh, of truth. It's taken me 20 years to get back to it. And so uh, I just trust you'll make these uh, sermons, get a copy of the CDs, and play it for your children and pray that it scares the daylights out of them if they don't know Christ. It did me as a young person, and God used it to bring me to Christ. Uh, Let us look at our notes if you want to, and uh, let's begin to examine this uh, idea of what in the world is going to happen. Well, for the church, Christ is going to come at any moment, any moment. We don't know when, but he's coming. And when he comes for us and we're caught up in the air after that glorious rapture of the church, and sometime between that rapture and coming back to the earth, Christ is going to evaluate every believer, only believers. He's going to evaluate your Christian life and see of what quality it was. Let me uh, look at two passages just in an overview and then we'll settle down in 1 Corinthians 3. First of all, Romans chapter 14. Uh, note the passage. I'll begin with verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. 
You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's slash Christ's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us believers, individual, not a group, individually, some way, with the millions of saints there, each of us will have our own time that Christ will ask you personally, give me the reasons for the reason you lived the way you did. Give an account. Tell me why you lived the way you lived. I want you to tell me why you face me. Give an account. Go. So he's telling the believers in a practical way, they were judging each other over Christian liberty issues. Uh, meat, what meat can we eat? Can we go to a movie? Uh, how to maybe dress? How long should hair be? All the stuff that Christians fuss about. And we keep inventing stuff. And he says, why are you wasting your breath judging one another over periphery matters when you yourself will have a personal time with Jesus Christ and you'll get to tell him why you ate the meat, did not eat the meat, all your choices. You have an appointment to see the principal of the school or the head of the church. And what you don't remember and what you don't say, he's kept a record of. Because according to Philippians 4, he keeps a ledger on what believers even give. He's going to even reveal your giving record because he keeps one in Philippians 4. And he's going to ask you, why did you do it this way? Good or bad? But he's going to let you give the explanation. Then you go to another passage in 2 Corinthians. We just briefly look at it. Same thrust. He says in verse 9, so we make it our goal, and it's really the word ambition. We make it our ambition to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we, believers, must, imperative, all-inclusive. We, believers, must, imperative, all-inclusive of everybody, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, he won't judge us collectively as elders or deacons or congregation. This is personal, individual accountability. We live in a blame culture. Everybody's to be blamed. Right here, this won't be a blame meeting. This is going to be you and him. That each one may receive what is due him. For the things done while in the body, and I take it the body of the believer that's saved, because God, as soon as you become saved, he wants your body to be his instrument for good. So he's going to ask you, what did you do with the body since I saved you? Whether good or bad. I give you the words good and bad. Good means morally good, beneficial, produces pleasure. Bad means slight, worthless, of no account. Bad used in the sense of evil in John and James. 
So everything you've done in your life that was either morally evil as a believer or just worthless stuff, stuff that wasn't morally right or wrong, but just stuff that did not have God in focus and was not necessarily what God wanted you to do or was just the survival stuff of life like eating, paying bills, making trips to the store that are just to function on the planet. There's no reward for just function. It's how the body was used to promote Christ. Then we go over to 1 Corinthians 1. Let's go there and try to settle down a little bit on this passage. As you're going there, I would like to set the context of the Corinthian problems, and they had all kinds of problems. Every pastor loves the book of Corinthians because when you're pastoring, something's always going wrong. Something's always in a mess. Either a home, a life, a program, critics, uh, it's never always just quite right. And sometimes you think we must not be doing anything right. Instead of that, we just say, no, we're a New Testament church full of problematic people, full of issues, and that we're on our toes all the time because there's always something you're dealing with. You ought to get nervous when there isn't a fight because we're fighting to hold truth in a darkened world and with all kinds of pressures to undo it. So church life isn't always easy. Sometimes it's, it's a mess, trying to deal with all the attitudes, all the opinions, and all that can happen with a thousand people during the week. So it keeps us on our feet. But the problem with this church is there was members in the church who were about to destroy it. And there was two avenues in which they were going to destroy it. And you begin in chapter 1 to 3. The first one was, they loved human wisdom, sophistry, coming out of Athens. They were in vogue of the philosophers. Uh, he called them age lovers. They loved the present philosophies and wisdom of this world. They were caught up with its methods, its philosophy, uh, its, the Greek way of doing church of doing things, great cultural pressures. And in that love of it, there was a group in the church who despised the biblical way of doing things. And this love of sophistry made them move the focus from Christ the head to personality cults. They had the Paul party, the Cephas party. They had Apollos. They had Christ. So they divvied up the church in favorite cliques favorite clubs, and personality cults. We've got to have charismatic personalities to follow, for we are enraptured with Aristotle. We're impressed by Socrates. We're impressed with Demosthenes. We're impressed with what comes from Mars Hill. Man, we want to be like Athens. And Corinth is only an hour's drive from Athens. I've been there. I know. And in the midst of that, they were destroying the church because God had chosen methods that did not meet their approval. And God used three methods they didn't like. He chose the foolishness of the cross to save. And that was an insult to Greek wisdom. You don't put a man on a criminal's cross and build a church. 
This is not what impresses people. Your leader got crucified. And Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which stumbles the Greeks and offends the Jews. But we preach a crucified Christ nevertheless. Two, God chose the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of what is preached, and I believe the foolishness of trembling, weak-kneed preachers, as Paul said he was in chapter 2. He said, I came to you with fear and trembling, which was not impressive to a Greek. I did not base the following of the group at Corinth based upon being a better orator than the Greek orators. I came in fear and trembling and in the power of the Spirit, and you laughed at preaching. You thought it was weak. And if you're a preacher, you quote Spurgeon and others who say, more men have been saved through preaching than any other means. But they thought it was foolish. Then the third thing God did they didn't like, he chose foolish people to save. Unimpressive people. So they were unimpressed with the cross, unimpressed with preaching, and unimpressed with the people God chose. They just were not billboard people. They were not many wise, not many great, not many this. And so in the midst of this, Paul moves into 1 Corinthians 3 and says, wait, wait, let me tell you something. God has laid a foundation for the church and it is the Christ of the gospel. It is the Christ who was born, crucified, buried, raised, ascended, and ruling over the church. This is the foundation we laid down to you. And you guys are messing with the foundation. You're building a chicken coop on top of this noble foundation of truth. And the gospel, the church is built on Christ, not Athens. The church is built on Christ, not Hollywood, not human inventions. It's built on a rugged cross. It's built on a crucified Christ. It's built on the weakness of human preachers who preach the truth and God saves all kinds of people. It's not dependent on Mars Hill. It's built on Christ. That's what he's wanting them to see. So anytime the church is popular, we ought to feel suspect. Something's wrong. For we are anti, we're not anti as much as counter culture. We don't march to the culture's beat in any century. We're the different community on the face of the earth built upon the foundation laid by the apostles which they preached the gospel concerning Christ. Now, he's asking this church that's in trouble, how are you building? He said, by the grace of God, in verse 10, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. It's so personal, so individual. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
His work will be shown for what it is. It's very, there's some strong words here. Notice, shown for what it is. He goes down and says, it will be revealed with fire. Uh, it, it will be personally exposed. It, the whole idea is just like the lid or the blanket is thrown back on one's life. And how you've lived, it's full exposure. There's nothing hidden. And it just keeps, it's revealed, uh, it's shown, it's seen. Uh, the quality of the work will be tested. I mean, it's, it's a day of full disclosure. His work will be shown for what it is. Student finals reveal what the student is. Passing failing, competent, whether they slept through class, goofed off during class, or can they, by the work they produce in that exam, prove they learned the material? I think that's one of the easier ways. I remember when we were giving Deborah piano lessons, Fiat put on a uh, concert night. I want to tell you, to come up as a musician or a singer. And this is, now we are going to expose what the teacher has taught the student and what the student has learned. And all of a sudden you see kids hitting notes that no one from Bach to Tchaikovsky ever heard. I mean, you, you, the only thing that keeps you there is your relatives. Now some do great, but others, you can't fake music easily. This is what we're paying for. Or art, artwork. You know, real artwork. Not just you throw the paint to your back and it hits the wall and it comes out a masterpiece. I'm talking about realism. Uh, you look and you say, you know, I really love you, but is that the best you can do? And this is the idea at the judgment seat. It won't be judging you about sins. You won't be under judgment for yourself. But we're going to evaluate what you painted. We're going to evaluate the exam. And there's going to be a grade. And some pass. There's only two grades at this judgment. Pass or fail. Reward or loss. Just two categories. So... We're going to have what we built. If it survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Watch this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple. Now this seems totally against the building thing. Two tensions. Building on it or destroying it. God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. So he's living with the tension of temple destroyers and temple builders. One group he threatens to kill. The other group he says, I'll reward. Now, let's uh, start out here. I have a note. Man's judgment of himself is invalid. Paul said in chapter 4, 
So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now that is a mouthful of psychology. Young people are enslaved to other people's opinions and they carry it into adult life. Enslaved and paralyzed by what people think of you. And we use the language among staff, I'd rather people respect me than like me. I'd rather do the right and not always be appreciated than to run a personality cult that I've always got to be liked before I can move or do anything. Human opinion enslaves you. And yet, we're all subject to it. But number two, when you don't have human beings judging you, you can spend so much time judging yourself and paralyze yourself. I'm, I'm ugly. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I feel guilty. Uh, my mother didn't love me, so I'm a wreck for life. Uh, I'm not... Oh, and you see people that are always down, or the opposite is pride, that you've got an inflated estimation of yourself, and everybody else says, we don't see what you see. We don't know, understand why you're proud. You're just not that good. Well, I think I am. Who's right? Well, the Bible says God's the only one right about you. He's the only one. He says a fool is always right in his own eyes. So if you're always saying you're great, you're a fool. Uh, there's always a way that seems right, but it's wrong. So you get, so I'm led by my heart. I think I'm doing the right. And uh, just because you think it's right doesn't mean you're doing the right. That's why fools never seek counsel. They don't want another opinion. They're going to do it their way because their way is the right way. And to seek another opinion would be to admit there might be a better way. And I'm not going to ask for an opinion. We heard a great lecture this week that a man said, the wisest man in the Bible sought out counsel. Solomon. I thought it was profound. Uh, All a man's way seems right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Or this one. I've seen this so many times. The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. I learned this in marital counseling. I never got the full truth until both parties were in the room at the same time. In the other days, I'd have usually the woman would come, my husband's bad or he's this and that. And if we could get him there and he'd give his perspective, you'd meet somewhere in between many times. You need both viewpoints. But Christ is going to judge his people. And I think some of the things he's going to ask us is, uh, I had a plan for you of good works. I saved you to a life of good works in Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to ask you, since my plan was perfect, how many of them did you do? And tell me why you didn't do the others. I just want to hear it from you. Why you didn't do my perfect plan. He saved us to show off his virtues and his person. And he's going to ask a person that's been all about themselves and Too proud to fail in ministry, too proud to try, too proud to take a class, too proud to teach a class, too proud about whatever, because they're all into themselves. 
Why didn't you show me off? Why was it all about you? Our series is simply entitled, What in the World is Going to Happen? It is a small look at a larger series, a prophetic series, taking a look at end times. We're only able to bring you a portion of it here in January. The entire nine-sermon set is available for a gift of $15 or more when you contact us here in the month of January. If you would like the book that accompanies this, also written by our teacher and pastor, Phil Howard, simply ask for it by name when you contact us, What in the World is Going to Happen? And for a donation of $25 or more, we'll send the book along as well. For a copy of today's program on CD, simply get a hold of us and we'll send one out to you, no charge. Our phone number is 855-833-9864. Or you can write to us at 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue. That's 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278. That's here in Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. As always, you're welcome to visit Valley Bible Church here in Hercules. We'd love to see you and spend time with you face to face. Services are at 9 and 11 Sunday mornings. Details and directions can be found at our website, valleybible.org, or again by simply calling 855-833-9864. This broadcast is available here on KFAX on a weekly basis as you come by and sponsor us financially and prayerfully. Linking Arms with Us continues the broadcast of Truth For Today here on KFAX, reaching thousands here in the Bay Area for the gospel of Christ. Further information can be had when you contact us at 855-833-9864. And then come back and join us next week for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Pastor Phil Howard